You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Oh no, here comes that young man back in again today with the perineal pain and the voiding symptoms. He's not responded to antibiotics. What am I going to do with him today? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jeanette Potts from the Glickman Urologic Institute at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, and we are discussing prostatitis. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Potts. Thank you. When we approach prostatitis, we know there are some more straightforward cases of prostatitis and then things that are more difficult. Can you take us through the approach to the more straightforward acute bacterial prostatitis? Yes. If the patient is otherwise healthy and reliable and compliant and their vital signs are stable, in this patient, you can begin them on oral agents, typically fluoroquinolones, and you can follow them as an outpatient. Other patients who would have risk for immune compromise, particularly patients who are diabetics, I would strongly recommend hospitalization and intravenous antibiotic therapy. And just like any other acute urinary tract infection, such as pyelonephritis, you would start with broad-spectrum coverage, typically ampicillin and gentamicin, if they're not allergic. And, you know, upon receiving the susceptibility profile and cultures, then uh, one would tailor their treatment, and after defervescence, begin oral antibiotic regimen. In patients who have urinary retention, it may be necessary to put a suprapubic catheter in place rather than an indwelling Foley catheter, and that is because of the risk of abscess formation. It's higher in patients who have a urethral catheter rather than a suprapubic catheter. You can determine this clinically by percussing the abdomen and doing palpations and or perhaps using a Doppler or an ultrasound. And in patients in whom there is a significant volume of urine, and I would say, you know, maybe 250 plus, we normally want patients to be under 60 or 100 mLs. But in this situation, if the patient is able to imbibe and they are voiding on their own, it, it, that would be a gray zone. In my, and this is my clinical opinion. I'm not basing this on any literature, but it would be hard to put uh, an instrument or instrument a patient in whom the residual or the retention is really not that great. Mm-hmm. And these patients, uh, when they come in the office, are they typically fairly sick and ill-appearing? They're febrile. They have night sweats. Their urine under the microscope is very obviously infected. And in this case, too, you know, patients' prostate examination may be either very soft and boggy or very firm. They may have more tenderness than most men, but actually that tenderness on examination and the, that fluctuance in texture that's described, that is so subjective. So I would want to clarify that or dispel that myth, too. I think the only time that there may be a correlation is with the acute prostatitis, and one of the things that you would want to check very gently is for abscess formation and checking for any suspicious nodularity or pocket effluxuance. And with regard to the prostate exam, I've heard conflicting things about the utility and the safety of doing prostatic massage. How should we proceed with the uh, acutely ill patient in that regard? Yes, with the acutely ill patient, I think it's important to still do a prostate examination, but not a massage. I mean, the urine will be very telling in almost every case like that. And in those cases, too, I think beginning uh, treatment empirically would not be inappropriate, even without an organism. Let's assume that the urine culture were to come back without an identifiable culprit. I still think that, you know, treating the person clinically and checking for signs of improvement and defervescence is, is fine. And the prostate massage could 
actually lead to bacteremia, and I think that in that setting, it's not appropriate. Stay away from the prosthetic massage and the setting of someone who appears to be acutely ill and is febrile. This is jumping away from the acute bacterial prostatitis, but do you sometimes employ prosthetic massage when you're not as confident of the diagnosis? Mm-hmm. Yes, and that is, you know, in the patients who may have recurrent symptoms and, you know, urinalysis or urine cultures that are equivocal, either with contamination and such. So prostate massage can be very helpful. This is based only on one old study, however, from the 1960s, which was not a huge study. But those of us who do research in this area still do prostate massages with localization cultures, which means that we obtain the first urine voided, which is 10 milliliters, and then immediately have the patient fill a second container, which represents the mid-void or bladder specimen. And then following the prostate massage, uh, we ask the patients to excrete another 10 to 20 mLs and that gives us the prosthetic fauna, and those are incubated together. So it's not like a, a screen, because a screen will miss anything you know, below 10,000 colony forming units. So these are incubated, mm-hmm. and quantitative cultures are done, and a comparison is made. You know, For example, if the urethral specimen or the VB1 grew 1,000 colony forming units of enterococcus, and the VB3 coming from the prostate was similar, you may then think that it, that's not really a prostatitis, but rather urethral contamination, mm-hmm. and the urine in between is sterile. When it is prostatitis, you usually will only find the culprit in the BB3 or at a tenfold level. Increased level. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, a more simple way to do this is the pre and post test, which is something that was studied by Dr. Nickel in uh, Canada, and what this involves is just the mid-void urine cultured together with the post-prostate massage urine. And in most clinical practices, that may be more practical because, you know, you're getting a mid-void urine as a routine in, in your patients, and you don't have to then worry about that VB1, which is no longer valid once you've rinsed the urethra through with a mid-void specimen. So it's more practical and perhaps less costly. And in their study, they found that the detection rate was comparable. How do you differentiate that from the so-called type 2 chronic bacterial prostatitis? The chronic bacterial prostatitis is a patient who, perhaps after having their first bout of acute bacterial prostatitis, continued to have colonization of the organism in the prostate gland or in whom colonization may be more insidious. Um, these men will present with recurrent urinary tract infections, and some of them can be similar to an acute prostatitis, or they can be less severe just with you know, lower urinary tract symptoms and symptoms of UTI. And even if the prostate gland can be massaged and a large number of organisms identified, these men in between their urinary tract infection bouts may be completely asymptomatic. I mentioned this earlier that if a patient has recurrent UTIs or is repeatedly found to have bacteriuria with the same organism, a nidus for infection needs to be considered and top on the list would be prostatitis uh, as the harbinger of these organisms. These patients may require other evaluations to make sure that they don't have a urethral stricture, uh, which will also promote the reflux of organisms from the urethra into the prostate and cause you know, recurrent urinary tract infection and or prostatitis. And uh, some persons may have, especially among older men, bladder diverticula with poor emptying in as reservoirs of, you know, stagnant urine. They may have calculi in the bladder. There may be neoplasms in the bladder, you know, things that can... Harbor the infection. Harbor, yes. So that's more the uh, infection that doesn't clear or something that comes back promptly as opposed to these chronic bacterial patients who may have longer periods of being asymptomatic in between 
these infections. Yes. Now, the other thing you mentioned was calculi within the prostate. You know, in doing transrectal ultrasonography, we all notice that there are many patients with nonspecific calcification or maybe small calculi distributed throughout the prostate architecture. There tends to be perhaps a, a little stronger correlation with, you know, denser prostatic calcification in patients who have scarring, and the scarring may be attributed to past inflammation or chronic inflammation. However, there is a study done by a very, very uh, well-known prostatitis researcher in Europe, Wolfgang Wiedner in Germany, and they had done a study looking at patients with culture-proven E. coli prostatitis treated with four weeks of quinolone and the recurrence rate of infection over 24 months. And they found an 80% durability of their therapy at 24 months, even with expressed prostatic secretion culturing. So it was not only uh, done through patient symptomology, but also through culture, that 80% had a durability of their treatment. And what they also noted was that there was no difference in the recurrence or the resolution of infection if there were calculi within the prosthetic tissue. So part of their little side observation and their side conclusion was that we need not get so focused on removing these calculi to prevent recurrence in our patients. So I thought that was a very valuable thing that they, um, they, they shared with us because sometimes people think they really need to have a TERP because of it or have a stone removed. There are other researchers who are looking at nanobacteria and perhaps their adherence to these calcifications and the need to perhaps dissolve these. And there is work being done, too, to uh, study the effects of antibiotic therapy coupled with remedies to dissolve some of these stones with medications. And that work's being done by Shoskis. And then in terms of uh, duration of treatment, what would you recommend for the outpatient treatment for an acute episode and then for chronic prostatitis? Do we treat longer? Do we use suppressive therapy? What are your thoughts there? Well, with an acute event, especially if it's the first event, um, I recommend four to six weeks of antibiotic therapy minimum. This will hopefully prevent the recurrence rate. And it's very important to remember that patients in this situation have a very high risk of lifetime recurrence of infection. With men with the chronic and recurring UTIs, I may opt for a four-week course, depending on, you know, the time that has elapsed since the previous infection. You know, let's say it's been quite a while and the patient had gotten quite ill from the recurrence or came in later or presented later. In patients who are really on top of things and in whom we've gotten very quick responses, they may, I may use two weeks. But I think two weeks should be the minimum mm-hmm. and six weeks should be the maximum, again, depending on the patient's response. Suppression should be considered in patients who are having more than three bouts a year. And I think in men with recurrent UTI, this is much more significant. I mean, when we're treating women with recurrent uncomplicated UTIs and maybe they have three or four a year, we're talking about a woman who may only need three days of an antibiotic to clear up her infection. And Whereas with a man, we're using the infection at such a high dose for such a relatively longer period of time, i.e. two to four weeks, that that man is at much greater risk for developing resistant organisms in that setting and even much worse, fungal infections. And I've had two cases of that in my practice of um, men getting fungal prostatitis because of recurrent antibiotic therapies. So in those men, I'm more apt to use the suppressive therapy, like a daily, nightly 
dose of um, a quarter to half dosing regimen. The thing that I also feel is important is with so many patients on anticoagulants and the need to monitor their INR and, you know, their PT, sometimes I, I, I tip the scale, too, if they're sicker patients. And I'm worried, too, that they, they don't come in or they don't have, you know, nice, subtle symptoms to alert them that an infection is brewing. Some of these people present and they're in urosepsis. So those patients and in the patients who are on chronic anticoagulation therapy, I may put those patients on suppression therapy a little sooner. I want to thank Dr. Jeanette Potts, who has been our guest as we've been discussing both acute bacterial prostatitis and chronic bacterial prostatitis. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.